0: Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world
1: of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton Working Behind the Scenes. We appreciate you hanging on an extra few days before we could get this podcast out as I was traveling in the Cincinnati and Louisville regions for work. But coming up on today's show, we'll be joined by Christina Rogers, EY's global consumer industries leader. She will join us to discuss their future consumer index. They recently released their ninth version of the index. Basically, we're going to talk a lot about what defines the consumer in 2022, what some main factors are in terms of consumer purchase decisions, and more importantly, what retailers can do to smooth the gaps that customers Find cumbersome between digital and in person or brick and mortar shopping, according to their data. In news, we'll talk about retail real estate as numbers came out from CBRE this past week that summarized the year that was in 2021. And we'll talk about where that could leave certain retailers. And we'll look ahead to the spring seasonal season at home improvement retailers. A quick reminder that you can like us or rate us, however you access us. Those ratings certainly help others to find out about the podcast. So if you enjoy it, certainly do give us a rating. Also, you can check us out on social media, Twitter and Instagram at Retail Podcast. All right, so let's get to this CBRE report. As it outlined, a bounce back for retail real estate in 2021. Now, their annual look at the retail real estate market had some overall positives for retail, particularly in a brick-and-mortar sense. Not all was positive. We'll get to some of the negatives or some of the downsides here in a bit. But coming off of 2020, which was, as one could expect, kind of a bad year for retail real estate, many smaller chains, out-parcel tenants like restaurants, found themselves closing their doors. We kind of figured 2021 would end up reclaiming some of those losses. Most REITs, as we talked about on the show at the time, reported positive movements in rental rates, and new leases during the first half of the year and indeed when you look at the full year numbers from CBRE they bear that out overall the retail market in the U.S. recorded 99 million square feet of positive absorption during 2021 now as some background absorption measures the amount of square footage either leased or vacated during a period so if it's negative You have net losses in terms of the square footage that's leased, like what we saw in 2020. Saw negative net absorption there. If it's positive, that means more square feet are leased this period over last. So positive absorption was expected in 2021, but that 99 million square feet, that's the highest year-over-year positive number since 2016. The year closed out with five straight quarters of positive demand, so that actually stretches back to Q4. Of 2020. The fourth quarter of 2021 alone, though, when you parse that out, it saw twenty point six million square feet in positive absorption, which is notable because the fourth quarter, not usually a quarter where you see businesses moving into vacant real estate. They'd like to get moved into that vacant real estate before Q4, as we've talked about with Multiple businesses, including the likes of Five Below and those dollar stores. But it's important to note that despite all of this positivity, despite that 99 million square feet of positive absorption there, the lifestyle and mall category saw negative absorption in the fourth quarter. Freestanding properties and neighborhood power and strip centers, those all drove the growth. Now for lifestyle and mall properties, Their absorption was negative for the year as well. It went negative by 1 million square feet. So those properties still having some of an issue after COVID in getting those vacant spaces leased up. But the flip side of negative absorption going back to 2020 for the entirety of the retail real estate landscape was that more REITs and developers were seeking to just backfill vacancies rather than open up new centers. So as a result, new supply of retail space in 2021 dipped to its lowest level in a decade, dating back to the Great Recession. A number of factors here, not only, of course, the COVID factors and the pandemic factors, but of course you have inflation as it pertains to getting those new structures built, building materials more expensive now than they've ever been, labor more expensive now than it's ever been. So in Q4 alone, new supply for retail real estate fell 59% from the already really low numbers in Q4 of 2020. So what does this mean for retailers? Well, ultimately, it means rising rental rates because heightened demand in the back half of 2021 wasn't matched by as much new supply as maybe we've seen in years past. So average asking rent increased by 1.6% in the fourth quarter year-over-year. Year. Now currently sits at 21.87 per square foot. That's on a per-year basis. It's seen a steady incline despite the pandemic, despite what people termed as the retail apocalypse. Overall, asking rent is the highest it's ever been. And this is the largest percentage increase in a single quarter since Q1 of 2019, talking, of course, about the fourth quarter of 2021. And the issue of supply isn't necessarily that supply doesn't exist countrywide. It certainly does. The U.S. finished 2021 with an availability rate of 5.6%, according to CBRE. Now, this is the lowest in 10 years. It was over 6.5% last year, so it has dropped off by almost a full percentage point. But still, you look and say... Well, 5.6%, that means 5.6% of the available retail real estate out there still isn't occupied. Why do we see the lease rates bump up? Why are we seeing this cluster of demand for properties when about one twentieth of the space in the U.S. is left to be rented? Well, the reason is because there's a lack of availability currently in A-class centers and growing markets. When you look at the A-class centers, when you look at the growing markets, the growing suburbs in certain areas throughout the country, when you look especially in the Sun Belt, lower California all the way to Texas, you're seeing a lot of A-class centers that are 100% occupied or very close to it. So as a result, a lot of that vacancy is isolated to B and C-class centers and markets that are trending kind of in the opposite direction. That might be losing population, Maybe you're looking in markets in the Midwest. So many national retailers who are very picky about where they set up, they want to set up shop in those A-class centers exclusively, those retailers are likely to see rents continuing to rise. We talked about Five Below or mentioned them a little bit ago, but Five Below is one of those retailers they like to be in those A-class shopping centers. They will probably see their rents continue to rise because supply is, simply put, very scarce. Meanwhile, retailers who do business in small to mid-sized markets or in the Midwest or take over recently abandoned real estate should be able to find some decent deals out there. You can think of an Ollie's bargain outlet in this space or maybe a dollar store. A good example of this is actually a family dollar I stumbled across in Tennessee recently. It's a rural Tennessee town, population of about 5,000, but they were able to find an abandoned save-a-lot space and rent that out at far less than the average U.S. rental rate. So some of those retailers that do business in the Midwest, in small to mid-sized markets, should be able to squeeze out some benefits in comparison to the overall U.S. rental rate, at least according to CBRE's data on that average U.S. rental rate. Now, as you dove into the data a little bit from CBRE's report, there are a few potential reasons for the upswing in brick-and-mortar retail occupancy. And of course, you can point to number one, the pandemic, people going out a little bit more often, despite Omicron, people still wanting to get out and experience shopping centers or retailers. And we'll talk to Christina Rogers with EY more about this in a moment in our interview segment. But that is probably the primary reason. The secondary reason is that the acceleration of e-commerce has actually slowed just a little bit from those massive leaps that we saw in 2020. Now, e-comm is still growing. We don't want to make it seem like e-comm is shrinking at least on the whole, but in Q4 CBRE's numbers suggest growth of 10.4% in e-commerce year over year. So rather than those numbers in the high teens that some were forecasting and certainly we heard from the likes of Deloitte that indicated that maybe customers thought they were going to spend about 60 to 70% of their holiday budget online and that just never really came to fruition there was a bit of a gap in between intent of consumers and what they actually did based on this CBRE data and then the third reason is that certain retailer centers that are brick and mortar heavy continue to see increases in spend from customers taking an aggregate you look at categories like sporting goods hobby book and music stores they saw a 28 percent bump in sales over 2020 again this is all CBRE data that we're quoting from this report And Despite 2020 being a decent year for most in this category, we talk about record years really in terms of sales increases from the likes of Dick's Sporting Goods, from a lot of hobby store chains as most people kind of circled back to hobbies during the pandemic. And although sales may peter out in this category over the next year, as we've talked about, furniture stores saw an increase over 26% in 2021 versus 2020. Miscellaneous store retailers, a large mom-and-pop contingent, they saw a 28% bump versus 2020. So you have all of these stores that really brick-and-mortar is their bread and butter. Seeing demand flow back to them after the first year of the pandemic, it stands to reason that these type of stores are competing to open new locations in maybe new or unsaturated markets, creating a number of companies that are really looking for space in the year ahead and we're really looking for space last year. And then the fourth thing, as already mentioned, new supply remains low. There was just 23.5 million new square feet introduced to the retail real estate landscape in 2021. That's down 36% from 2020, 49% from levels we saw in 2019. So massively low levels here in terms of new supply owing to, as we talked about before, a number of reasons. And you can expect new supply to remain low with construction costs, both materials and labor soaring. I've talked to a few mid-sized market city leaders in growing areas over the last couple of months, and they've said, hey, look, we have a laundry list of retailers seeking to move in, but we can't find contractors, we can't find developers willing to develop because the construction costs are so high. You figure if construction costs do dip at any point in time, we might see more new inventory hit the market, but right now it's still going to be very tight, at least for the foreseeable future. So ultimately, what does this information in the report mean for retailers? Well, we could take away a number of things. Despite the closures we heard so much about over the last four years, and it's kind of funny by the way that retail apocalypse isn't thrown around as much anymore by the national media, especially since the onset of the pandemic, there seems to be heightened demand for space from many tenants. It's not this just overwhelming push away from brick-and-mortar retail that some experts thought we were going to see. We can also see that demand for brick-and-mortar locations can be expected to rise as construction costs increase because of the lack of new inventory. And perhaps this pretends a return to some B and C class centers by certain retailers whose concepts maybe can support this return to some of those B and C class centers to benefit from the vacancy in those centers and reduced rental rates that they'd be getting versus the A class shopping centers. Also, you know, one thing I was thinking about this week as well, there's been a number of experts quoted over the years, especially since the onset of the pandemic, especially since the push to e-commerce that we saw during the early days of the pandemic that swore that the U.S. is over-retailed and it would be a possibility for around 30% of the U.S. retail real estate to go vacant in the next decade because of this over-retailing in the U.S. Now, look, that still might be true. We shouldn't take these 2021 numbers to mean that the U.S. definitely isn't over-retailed, but the bottom line is that the numbers suggest that drops in occupancy rates are still a little ways off also, the retailers seem to be doing fine enough to re-up leases or expand in the current market, suggesting that maybe that over-retailing, not where some of those quoted experts seem to think it is. Maybe the U.S. economy can support the current number of retailers that are out there, or maybe not a 30% drop, as some experts have been quoted in media outlets as saying. And then the final takeaway, I think, from this is a negative one. Traditional malls still seem to be struggling with occupancy. And again, you don't want to generalize because there's a lot of A-class properties that are out there, like I said, that are about 100% full. But the malls seem to be struggling a little bit compared to the strip centers, compared to the neighborhood centers. And they might not be struggling as much as they were maybe in 2019 or 2020. But freestanding retail, of course, helped by dollar stores and those neighborhood centers, as well as strip centers of various sizes, they appear to be the driving force in retail real estate occupancy in the early 2020s, at least from what we can tell so far. So I think there's a number of things that we can take away from the CBRE report, and that's exactly the reason we wanted to bring it up on today's show. Well, coming up after this break, as mentioned, we'll be joined by Christina Rogers, EY's consumer industries leader, EY recently released their ninth Future Consumer Index, and Christina will join us to talk all about the index and some projections for 2022. I want to take some time before we get to our interview this week to discuss a little bit about marketing. Look, ultimately, a marketing department at any business, at any retailer, They want to meaningfully contribute to the bottom line of the company. They do this through leveraging of data. They do this through using different channels, different tactics to try and reach the consumer. But one channel that marketing departments out there might be afraid or hesitant to try a little bit is influencer marketing. There are reasons for this. Some people say it's too risky. A lot of people say, look, it's very difficult to measure influencer marketing, especially when you talk about micro influencers and our new partner, Hashtag Paid, completely understands that they're the number one rated influencer marketing platform on G2 Crowd because they understand this and they help brands to kind of overcome this fear that's out there of influencer marketing. So that brands can build their online reputation, whether it's a retailer, whether it's a CPG, and they don't do it, here's the interesting thing, with influencers, they use creators. Let me talk to you a little bit about their platform. They make it very easy for you to test this channel advertising via content creators. You can pick your audience and objectives. There's a short list of creators that they have curated specifically for you. And these creators make you and your marketing team look like absolute geniuses and drive that bottom line that every marketing department really wants to feel like they're a meaningful part of. They promise that you'll never have to spend hours searching for influencers or haggling with them about compensation or legal You don't get those messages from the influencers afterward about further kickbacks or anything like that. And most importantly, we talk so much about data on this podcast, you'll get all the data you want. You'll never be left in the dark about exactly how a campaign is performing. Now, their platform starts at $499. That's $499. That is a drop in the bucket and the retail focused podcast listeners that are out there I'm talking to you you get $500 of free working spend on your first creator campaign so go to go.hashtagpaid.com slash retail that's G-O dot H-A-S-H T-A-G P-A-I-D dot com slash retail and you'll receive $500 dollars off your first campaign that is an amazing deal only for retail focused listeners we'll put the link in our show notes once again hashtag paid check them out and think about channeling your marketing or at least a part of it through creators rather than influencers there is a difference visit their website to find out more Over the past several weeks, we've been looking ahead to what will define the consumer in 2022. and We round out our look ahead at the year to come by welcoming Christina Rogers, EY's Global Consumer Industries Leader. EY recently released their annual Future Consumer Index, which dives into what may drive consumer decisions in the immediate future. Christina, welcome to the show.
0: Trent, thank you.
1: First, I was wondering if you could give our listeners an idea of where the data comes from for this Future Consumer Index and how the survey kind of gets conducted.
0: Sure, happy to. And actually, it's more than annuals, as you could imagine, during the last uh, two years through the pandemic. So where this started back in April 2020, quite frankly, you will remember this, our lives turned upside down in March 2020. And as our global consumer leader, I thought. you know something's going to change here depending on how long this lasts so we quickly conceived of the index to really track behavior into the unknown quite frankly and we're actually the data we'll be talking about today or some of the things we've seen is actually our eighth iteration of fielding this research and really tracking where consumers are in 21 countries around the world so we hear from about 16,000 consumers in Asia, Europe, Africa and North and South America and really trying to get a pulse on what changes we've made in our lives are sticking and which ones might fundamentally be disregarded once we quote get through this.
1: So let's start out on that note with kind of the 30,000 foot level view according to your data, according to the consumers that you're interacting with, where is consumer sentiment and behavior at this stage of the pandemic?
0: Well, I mean, there's certainly fatigue and that comes across both, you know, in our data and probably in our daily lives as we interact with people. But I think what we're seeing kind of out of the latest round of research, which was launched in the fall, is that consumers are fundamentally reassessing. So this is some of this data is before Omicron, of course, but you know, consumers around the world have really accepted many of the behaviors, you know, that they've had to adopt throughout the pandemic. And when asked, they think, well, there's no normal to go back to. About 63% of people say, you know, we've made changes. I like many of the changes I've made, and they're here to stay. And so there's kind of a, an acceptance of where consumers are. And there's a reflection, I think. We've seen that consumers have, we as people, have sat in our homes. If we were working from home or going to school from home throughout the course of the lockdowns, the pandemics and the various phases that came through, we've been enmeshed in all of our stuff. (laughs) And so we're seeing consumers reevaluate what they want to spend on. They buy less, buy better, consume better. You know, and that could be just because we've been at home and we've seen, you know, what we have. But it's also about a certain segment of the population's finances so some people were of course financially affected throughout the pandemic and then others are thinking more about just you know sustainability and sort of what they bring into their homes and throw out we've been surrounded by all of that you know for the last couple of years and so in the research that we've done, we've seen about 40% of respondents now globally are really taking waste and sustainability into consideration in terms of you know how they think about their spending and how they want to live their lives going forward. So we'll see how long that lasts, but it seems like consumers through this have kind of come out the other side in a, a bit of a reflective mode.
1: And you mentioned this reflective mode you know, now that we've been in the pandemic for almost two years. I think looking at this data, one of the more interesting things is people have been able to kind of self-reflect, and a number of people feel as though their lives changed for the better during the pandemic. I'm curious what some new habits that people have developed are over the last couple of years and how we can expect the habits, whether it's staying at home, taking care of their home more often, what have you, to change patterns in shopping or consumption going forward.
0: Yeah, we're definitely seeing some habits and patterns that are sticking. And so that was really the whole point of checking in with consumers kind of at the beginning, every three months, we've let that bit more time in between research going into the field. But it's interesting to see that, you know, I just mentioned, you know, we've been at home, we've sort of looked around and said, we've got too much stuff, I don't need this much. But There's other, I guess, I would say kind of more emotional things that we're seeing. So 50% of respondents globally saying they don't agree with the statement that buying things and adding more to their lives makes them happy. And I would say that's probably different from a few years ago where consumption and buying brands and having things was certainly a driver or believed to be a driver of happiness. People have sort of reflected on that and buying for buying's sake seems to be somewhat over for right now, especially with regards to cosmetics, clothing, shoes, and handbags. Respondents in almost every country where we've done this research have said they've noticed they have too much of that. And specifically with regards to cosmetics, it's interesting to say that nearly half of our respondents globally, and it of course varies country to country, say they're comfortable now day to day without beauty products. And of course, you know, that can be because we've had nowhere to go. So, you know, I don't need to use those products or I don't need as many clothes or shoes right now. But I think that there's just been a general reassessment of what's important for some segments of the population. And I think that this aspect of just being at home more and creating a hub around my home is quite important. We're seeing people really building lifestyles at home. So you would have experienced the same thing where We learn to do almost everything in our lives from our homes, whether it was working, if you could, you know, health visits, you know, online education, entertainment, fitness and exercise. And so that's there to stay. People are really building their homes as a place where they expect goods and services to come to them. And I think we saw about 52% of consumers saying that their home is a real focus and taking better care of it and upgrading it is very important to them. And so that, I think, is here to stay. We've just learned to do too much from our homes, and it's very convenient.
1: You talk about, certainly, the changes that have gone on during the course of the pandemic through this data. One of the things I think your data is great at doing is breaking out things in terms of country, in terms of region. But you also break down many of the findings into generational groups. What are some of the key differences we're seeing between generations as far as retail is concerned at this stage?
0: Yeah that's very interesting and it probably tracks with maybe what your expectations are in the sense of we are certainly seeing that on average coming through this that maybe it's part of that reflection I talked about but brands let's park luxury aside I don't think this pertains to luxury goods necessarily but brands in general just less of a factor you know 44% of our global consumers saying that they just don't care that much anymore. They're happy to try different things and they had to try different things, maybe not their favorite brands throughout the pandemic, but that's less so for millennials and Gen Z. Those generations seem to be still very much interested in the brands they like. They want brands that reflect them, reflect their values. And they're certainly, you know, for anyone who's in the consumer or retail space, influencers for those generations are certainly more of a factor and influencers, you know, quite often represent brands. So we're seeing that while maybe Gen X or baby boomers are sort of less enchanted with brands coming out of this, that doesn't necessarily apply to millennials or Gen Z. And the other thing I noticed was that, you know, gen z and millennials still very excited for the shopping experience right still very excited whether it's online or in store if there's something attractive or there's an event or if there's something that seems exciting to them you know they're planning to participate and you know don't forget this research was pre-christmas but you know we asked about participating in exciting shopping events and really over 70 percent of those generations still very much delighted to be part of that less so With our older generations, I think baby boomers are kind of like 35% said, yeah, you know, I might be kind of interested to participate in a next big shopping event. So certainly a delineation in terms of where the younger and older generations are as far as excitement around brands and shopping. You know, we're seeing that segment of the people that we've been tracking around experience first has grown significantly in our last round of research. My interpretation of that is that, you know, people are, you know, they've been housebound, so they want to be out. They want to be out, you know, leisure and travel and restaurants. But I also think it's about digital experiences because we were forced to be online for so much of our lives. And we've seen what good, bad and ugly digital experiences look like. And so our expectations have been set very high. Maybe that retail needs to follow what the insurance industry is doing or where some other industry is doing. But my expectation as a consumer I think around experience, you know, has grown tremendously.
1: And You talk about this idea of shopping as an experience, people seeking out the experience of shopping, and I think some of your more detailed data in this study, so participants in the survey most recently, were asked what some of their top challenges were with online shopping. And just focusing on the U.S., three main concerns really came up: produce selection. Not all SKUs being made available and the frequency of replacements, all of which have to do very much with online grocery shopping. And we're seeing numbers certainly reflect that online grocery shopping seems like from third-party data went down in 2021 versus 2020. Maybe that experience wasn't there. What are some ways in which you feel like U.S. grocers, based on this data, based on the findings can maybe smooth over this divide and create that experience to really maybe drive customers to the digital realm in grocery once again?
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, obviously, at the very beginning of the pandemic in the U.S., where we had lagged behind Europe, certainly in terms of online grocery shopping, that just skyrocketed. And for you know many parts of the population, that's still convenient and still a way that they want to receive their grocery items, but you know, there have certainly been complaints like you mentioned. There's also concerns around just the cost of delivery, the cost of shipping, and just not being able to find the things that they want, even, you know, being surprised. So if they're shopping online, being surprised when the right thing doesn't turn up or there's been substitutions made, et cetera. So, you know, I think as retailers start to think about as we come out of this, what do consumers really want? You know, where do they fit in to that consumer's life. So as I said, you know, we've all gotten used to kind of our home hub, building our lifestyle at home, having things come to us, things being made very convenient. And I think retailers really do need to think about, you know, what is the integrated experience, you know, that people are now demanding kind of two years on from all of this, you know, retail maybe was seen more as simply transactional. You know, if we think pre-pandemic, I buy things. Now we've gotten accustomed to, all sorts of ways of buying things, whether it's online or curbside pickup or in-store or in-store pickup or whatever it is, and the expectation is high that the experience around all of that is good. And certainly you know, some of the way that I've been thinking about this and some of the work we've been doing at EY in our retail space is thinking about three eyes. So coming out of this and what the expectation is from a shopper, am I indispensable? Am I invisible in their lives? And do I create intimacy? And by that, I mean indispensable. So have I become a valued partner, right, for this consumer? Am I part of their home hub? I don't just sell goods and services, but maybe I put them together in such a way that, you know, I solve problems and I create solutions for the consumer. I think that's key. The whole transactional piece of retail, I think, you know, we can all do that online quickly with past purchases, but you've got to do more. You've got to figure out how to be indispensable for me. But that being said, I don't want you in my way, right? So a retailer has to be invisible, right? I don't want that kind of clunky in your face sort of thing. I expect you to make my life easier, to make shopping more convenient, to make it frictionless, to be there when I want it to be. And I think, you know, there's enough technology around that clever retailers can figure out how to be indispensable but invisible at the same time. And then the third, I would say, is intimacy. We find that consumers, and this is including in Europe, where there's a lot more concern about data privacy. We've seen through the pandemic, we asked this question, consumers are more than willing to share their data if they get value out of it. And so if you've got my data, don't bombard me with something that's irrelevant, right? I expect you to provide me some level of intimacy that you know me and you know what my needs are. From that perspective, you know, across those three eyes, retailers really need to think about how can I become those things across all of these dimensions where the consumer is? And I've heard some of my retail colleagues out there say, well, the consumer is the channel now, right? So we've got to figure out where they are, are they at their home hub or where are they? And how do we become indispensable and visible and be intimate with them?
1: We've talked around it to this point, but really one of the things that we're always looking at here on the show, one of the things I know you always look at there at EY is what ultimately drives the decision to purchase a product. And like I said, we've talked about brands. We've talked about the convenience mechanism as well. But We've also seen shifts in this during the pandemic. Health and safety was a big reason for product purchase decisions early on in the pandemic. It seems to have shifted maybe back to price. What are some other factors that seem to be rising up in terms of that consumer consciousness determining what makes them purchase a product?
0: Well, in terms of consumer consciousness, I mean, I think we kind of leap right to ESG and sustainability and so forth. And you probably remember this, Trent, at the beginning of all of this when nobody was really out at all, right? And we saw wildlife in the streets and we saw clear skies in Los Angeles and all of that sort of thing. And, And there was a lot of, I think about when I go back to the first few rounds of this research that we did, there was a real intensity right around seeing, you know, what all of our consumption and our human behavior does to our environment. And so we saw a lot of interest in understanding about what consumers could do to keep it going, right? To keep kind of blue skies everywhere going. That waned somewhat in the different cycles of research that we did. More recently, though, in the research we launched in the fall and had a look at, there still are good intentions. So consumers are still willing to consider environmental impact some say 56% globally say they would be willing to pay more if they understood that a specific choice you know had a better impact on the environment or not a negative one now of course you know there's always the action and intention gap as far as consumers go we quite often will say that we want to do things and then we don't do them necessarily so the proof would be in the pudding but We do see that almost 50% of consumers globally say sustainable packaging is becoming very important to them, that they'll be looking at that and wanting manufacturers to provide that sort of information. And we've just seen a growing segment throughout this research over the last two years, just a growing segment. We've been bucketing consumers into different segments, and one is called Planet First. And we've seen a growing number of consumers kind of getting into that segment of the global population. So at least being more conscious and aware. Now, you have to balance that with the fact that we've also learned that on the bad behavior front from this research, we've seen that 25% of people intend to spend more on grocery delivery services and food delivery services. And with that, we know comes a lot of plastic and packaging and and other things. And we also have seen that people, especially when they were concerned about the COVID and you know, wanted extra packaging around things and wanted to make sure things were safe and secure. So while there's intention, I think we still have to track, you know, where's the real action and activities? And I still think retailers and manufacturers will be on the hook to take action on what consumers say they want even if consumers aren't willing to pay for it. So there'll be kind of a reckoning there, I think, in terms of what the CPG companies and the retailers need to think about in terms of you know how to do this in a cost-effective
1: way. I like that point a lot. Sometimes there's a big divide between intention and then execution on that intention on the part of the consumer. I wanted to wrap up with this because This has something to do, certainly, with that intention around buying. And at the beginning of the pandemic, you saw when stores reopened, a bunch of people going out, going to HomeGoods and Ikea and so forth. Really, that nesting phenomenon became a thing. But now, durable goods sales, we've heard from people, have been expected to decline in 2022. And I'm curious, what were some findings in this study that suggested people might be looking at that? With intention, might be hanging on to what they've already got for longer.
0: Yeah, and we, we did see that, and I think it kind of comes back to that home hub concept. So we've been in our homes, we've seen what we have globally. We know that people are saying that they want to upgrade their homes, they want to focus on them being a better place to spend so much time. But I think to your point, we've been tracking this idea. It sort of started around the sustainability point, right? Throwing things out instead of repairing them, but we've seen a growing number of people in the various launches of the research, people saying, no, actually, you know, now that I've been here, I've been home, I'm reflecting, I'm concerned about where this stuff goes when I throw it out. Globally, we've seen a growing number, and right now it's at 53% of our respondents say, you know, they'd really prefer to repair big items, so durable goods in their home versus replacing them. And I think that's probably driven both from finances. So some segments of the population, of course, have not fared very well throughout you know the last two years in terms of you know job losses or had to focus their finances elsewhere, et cetera. So that would make sense. But I do think there's still some recognition around just the sustainability aspect of this and longevity and not being so wasteful. So it gets back to where we started on this discussion around just you know being a bit more reflective about how we treat our environment how we treat our finances how we treat our home and so maybe you know reduce reuse recycle you know might actually be a great outcome out of this pandemic
1: we've spent all of this time talking about the consumer and just wanted to end on this i know your job is certainly to look at things with A broad breadth as far as the retail industry, as far as consumers are concerned. But if there's one sector of retail that you could pinpoint as maybe you're keeping an eye on, you're interested to see how things pan out in 2022, what would that sector be?
0: Oh, I think that you've already mentioned it. It's definitely food and grocery. I think that there's just been, you know, we were so behind here in terms of our behavior compared to other parts of the world. And we're really playing catch up in terms of you know, how we shop for food, whether we want it to be local, what kind of information we want about it, how we want to receive it, and so on and so forth. I think there's just tremendous upheaval right now in terms of that food grocery space. And so, you know, for me, that's really one to watch. And there's, you know, we can look to Asia, we can look to Europe, and we can see some of the trends there in terms of what's happening. But I'm guessing, you know, we're going to see some very different ideas around from our grocery retailers in terms of keeping their consumers happy and keeping them either you know in the store or in the store and online or in the store and online and somewhere else. But really thinking about that kind of complete and holistic experience for me as a consumer.
1: Well, once again, Christina, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to kind of flesh out your future consumer index here today on the podcast.
0: Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Trent. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts.
1: Well, we thank Christina for joining us. And if you can't tell by this point, my voice is in rough shape. We're in the uh, yearly or so period of time in which I seem to lose my voice every single year. So... We'll wrap it up quickly by looking ahead at the spring retailing season, specifically the spring seasonal season for home improvement retailers. Now we've talked before about how durable goods, about some home improvement categories, might take a step back in terms of sales from 2021 to 2022. However, Spring sales, at least what's been indicated so far, could be as robust as they were last year. And one of the ways we tell this is by looking at hiring numbers. As far as Home Depot is concerned, they're seeking to hire 100,000 new seasonal employees this spring. To put this in perspective, the past couple of years, Home Depot has sought to hire 80,000 new employees. So you're looking at a 25% boost in the number of seasonal employees Home Depot is seeking to add on to and I think this maybe indicates that Home Depot at least is expecting more robust seasonal sales this year over last year or at the very least sales to come in at a similar rate. You know a lot of customers have probably gotten those mowers, gotten those bigger ticket items over the last couple of years and we talked about kind of that last spurt in early 2021 of stimulus money really assisting in some of these garden centers selling the big ticket items in some of these home improvement retailers. But there are so many things that come up as expenses on an annual basis. For example, we talk about people painting the outside of their houses. Of course, the price of paint has gone up. So you might expect sales to increase along with inflation there. But planting is an annual thing. Mulching around the house is an annual thing. A lot of really springtime outdoor activities surrounding a property that you own, these are going to be purchases every year. And at least Home Depot's hiring numbers indicate that this could be pushing towards a positive outcome for the spring seasonal season. You know, one other thing that we mentioned on the last podcast episode is really looking ahead to Tractor supplies performance. And I think that's the same thing for this spring tractor supply company. While they do have a number of durable goods, a number of goods you might only have to purchase once every 5 to 10 years, you are looking at a number of seasonal things that are annual purchases for their customers. So, I'm looking ahead to spring seasonal sales, specifically garden center sales, for the likes of Home Depot, Lowe's, Ace, Menards, Tractor Supply Company, and the list goes on, because ultimately, I think, and I've got an indication here from a few different retailers, That the spring seasonal sales, at least as far as garden is concerned, probably going to be in line, if not better, than previous years. And so that would really get the year out to a positive start for the likes of these companies. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus this week. Coming up next week, or coming up really in just a few days, as we'll release on our typical Sunday coming up this week. We'll be joined by Thad Price. He's the CEO of Talru, and he will join us to discuss the current retail hiring landscape. You hear so much about the war for talent. You hear so much about wage increases, benefits increases. He's going to talk about what benefits retail employees are really looking for according to their data and how retail companies can go about finding ways to not only recruit the best talent, but retain the best talent, and that includes flexible scheduling for certain employees. So it's a valuable conversation. I certainly hope you'll tune in. Again, that next podcast is to launch this coming Sunday, February sixth. So we thank you for listening to this one. And we'll be back with you just four to five days from now.
0: This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.